Thank you to our band, and thank you. How about another round of applause for our band? We appreciate you very much. Thank you. And a very special round of applause for John on the drums. Great to see you back, John. He's back. Thank you all. And I got to tell you, I felt like I heard you all louder than usual. So thank you for playing along. Thank you for rolling with it. And thank you for singing out today. We are uh, in the early stages of what we're calling the Jesus Series here at Hope Community Church. I believe this is maybe part five of this series. And what we're doing from September through early May is we're going through the life of Jesus in a mostly chronological order. And you have three different ways to connect with the Jesus Series. Uh, you can read these passages uh, every day, Monday through Saturday. You have these passages that you can read from the Bible, that you can read from the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the four biographies of the life of Jesus. And so every day you can read one of those passages, and then during the week you can attend one of our small groups to ask your questions and learn some more. And then on Sunday mornings you show up in this space, and I'm going to talk about something that you've encountered during the week. And so I want to speak to those of you who have not yet done any of the readings. You feel like, oh, I haven't, I've just kind of missed out on this. Guess what? Tomorrow is the perfect opportunity to jump in to the Jesus series. I cannot stress this enough because tomorrow and all through the week, you're going to be reading one of my favorites, the Sermon on the Mountain. Okay? And those of you who have been with us at Hope Community Church for a long time, you know, I'm like, hey, why don't you read the Sermon on the Mountain? Because it's great just to hear from Jesus himself what he has to say and what he has to teach. And so we want to encourage you to jump in. Don't feel bad. Oh, I didn't do any readings yet. So what? Start tomorrow. Jump into that tomorrow. We highly encourage you to do so. Now, I realized uh, recently that I have been in some kind of a vocational ministry thing for um, more than half of my life, which makes me feel very old, right? But when I first started out, I was working with youth ministry, and I remember one specific occasion. Now, this is before I went to seminary. This is before I was finished Bible college, and so I'm there. I'm in this position trying to lead youth and trying to get equipped as I'm doing it, and I was meeting with a group of our leaders, and we were talking about something very fun. We were talking about obedience to the Bible, right? Because that's what you talk about when you get together with some leaders. And we talk about obedience to the Bible. And if the Bible says it, we have to do it. And one of our leaders spoke up and he said, well, hang on a second. We Christians, we don't do everything the Bible says. I mean, we eat pork, don't we? And the Bible says you're not supposed to eat pork. And we eat shellfish, don't we? And the Bible says you're not supposed to eat shellfish. And at that time, I wasn't sure how to respond other than to say, yeah, but that's the Old Testament. And we're living in the New Testament time. But you see, this has been a point of confusion and a point of, of misunderstanding for many, many years going back, all the way back to the time of Jesus. Just this understanding that there is a difference between an, an Old Testament and a New Testament. An old covenant that God made with a specific group of people at a specific time, and then a new covenant that God makes with all people. There's a difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. And within the old covenant, you find the promise of a new covenant. And so this, again, it's a source of confusion for some of us modern-day followers of Jesus as we turn to the Bible and say, well, why don't we do these things? Well, it's part of the old covenant. But if you go back to the time of Jesus, this was a major stumbling block for so many members of the religious establishment, people who made up the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, I mean, they saw Jesus doing things like, well, doesn't that contradict the old way? Doesn't that contradict our way? They just didn't understand that Jesus came to bring a, a new way, a better way, a deal, a covenant, not just for one group of people, but for all people. 
Let's take a look. Lori read for us some of Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look more. In fact, I'm going to start. Let's go with, um, if you have a, 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 I'm sorry, did I say Matthew? I meant Mark. Did I say Matthew? Sometimes I don't even listen to myself. Mark chapter 2. And if you have a Bible or your Bible app, you can turn to that. I'm going to start with verse 13. And uh, for those of you doing the reading plan, you read about this earlier in the week. Uh, You also read this same account told from Luke's perspective a couple of weeks ago. But this is Jesus calling somebody to become one of his disciples. A rabbi inviting and calling someone to follow him. Mark 2, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along... He saw Levi, also known as Matthew to us, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Well, thank you for all the details there, Mark. It's pretty succinct. Here's some stuff that happened. There's some crowd, a crowd of people follow Jesus, and so he taught them, and then he saw this guy named Levi, also known as Matthew, and invited him to follow him. Fantastic. We have to think about the dynamic of what's going on here. I mean, Levi was a man, an Israelite man, he was a Jew, who had betrayed his own people to become a tax collector. Now, tax collectors aren't exactly popular nowadays, but we're talking about a whole different level of unpopular back in Matthew's day. This is a man who betrayed his own people, collected money from his own people to hand over to the enemy, to the Romans. And so this man was a sinner, sinning against God, sinning against his own people. So a fun fact about tax collectors, back in those days, this, this position to become a tax collector was highly sought after. In fact, in fact people would lobby for this position, may have even had an auction to, to try and win this position because it could be quite lucrative. Now, the Romans didn't pay tax collectors a salary, but they said to them, okay, you guys do some creative math, Right? And whatever you can get out of people above what what we need, that's your salary. So this is who we're talking about. This is the kind of man we're talking about. And Jesus says to him, why don't you knock all that off? Come and follow me. And this man says yes. This man, I mean, just to be accepted and invited by Rabbi Jesus to become one of his followers, and that's life-changing. So he says yes. Not only does he say yes, he says, okay, he's had some kind of encounter with Jesus. Now he wants the other people in his life, his fellow sinners, to meet this man, to meet this Jesus. Verse 13, okay, I need a bigger print Bible before next Sunday. Well, okay, verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is this Jesus who's supposed to, isn't he supposed to be a man of God? Isn't he supposed to be a good man? Why is he contaminating himself by spending time with sinners? I mean, sharing a meal together, breaking bread, that was a much more personal kind of intimate experience than it is nowadays, all right? 
And so here is this man who's supposed to be a man of God, just like allowing himself to become contaminated by sinners. At least that's the way that the Pharisees saw it. I mean, they had a lot of rules about keeping themselves clean. Let's stay away from the sinful people. And Gentiles, forget about it. We're not even going to go to one of their houses. Let's stay away from these unclean people. And so they see Jesus like, what are you doing? You're, you're sharing a meal with these people? You're having a grand old time eating and drinking with, with these sinners? So they don't ask Jesus the question. They ask his disciples. Because that's how cowards operate, right? We're not going to ask Jesus. We're going to ask his disciples. But guess who knows what's going on and who answers? On hearing this, on hearing their question, their objection to this, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, we're only a few weeks into this Jesus series, but we've referenced this multiple times. This is so important. And if we could just pause for a moment to realize how offensive that statement was to the Pharisees asking that question. Because essentially what Jesus said to them is, what, you got a problem with what I'm doing? That's fine. I'm not even here for you. I'm here for them. See ya. Anyway, where were we? You realize how hurtful that could be. Listen, you guys, you think you've got it all figured out? You're not here to receive from me. You're not here to listen to me. You're just here to critique and to criticize. I'm not even going to waste my, I'm not here for you. You're healthy, at least you think you are. You don't need a doctor. They do. I'm not here for you. I'm here for them. Oh, wow. What if Jesus said that to you? Ooh, I don't want to think about it. Goodness gracious. But the offense they must have experienced. We continue on. Now John's disciples and some of the Pharisees were fasting. Okay, so fasting, going through this process of intentionally refraining from food for a period of time in order to really focus on work, building that connection up with God. And every time you felt that, that sense of hunger, it would bring you to prayer, it would bring you to reading scripture and just, I'm, I'm living off the word of God, I'm not relying on food. And so they're going through this period of fasting. And some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John, the Baptist's disciples, and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting. They're going through this process. And fasting, you know, some of you in this room have been through that. You know it's not exactly described as fun to be on a fast. How is it those guys are fasting, but your disciples aren't? Your disciples are hanging out with sinners. They're eating. They're drinking. They're sharing some laughs. Why are your disciples not fasting? Oh, this kind of thing drives me crazy. Just let's look at what somebody's doing and just critique the heck out of it, right? These people over here are fasting. Why aren't you? Oh, my goodness. Jesus gives them an answer. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. And so as we make our way through the Gospels and further on into the New Testament, we see this imagery begin to be fleshed out of Jesus as the groom and the church, all of us who are believers, as the bride. And we go further on into the writings of Paul. We'll see more about how this dynamic makes sense and how this dynamic plays out. And Jesus is saying, I'll give you an answer. You got some questions for me about why we're not fasting? Well, this is a time where I'm with them. This is a time to celebrate. 
This is a time where we're together. There's going to be a day where I won't be here. And when I'm taking from them, then they'll mourn. Then they will fast. But not now. Jesus continues. And I love this, by the way. He, say, no, he says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. Anybody here know anything about garment repair? Me neither, all right? Maybe some of us do. But I kind of get the idea, right? Anybody ever put a patch on their jeans? I used to do that back in the day. I used to have my mom do that back in the day, okay? But if you take some unshrunk material, do I need to explain this? You get it. It's not going to work. It's going to pull away and make the tear even worse. Jesus like, I'm bringing you something new that's not compatible with the old. It's going to tear away. Well, Jesus, could you give us another example? Well, yes, he does. Here we go. It says, and no one pours new wine into the old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Now, again, I don't understand much about the winemaking and bottling process of those days, but apparently they did not put wine to ferment in bottles. They would have these wine skins. And from what I understand, you could use a skin more than once as long as it was kept like damp. You've got to keep using it because once it dries out, you can't use it again. You take this dried out wine skin and you pour some new wine on there and as it ferments, bursts, just like Jesus says. Right? And so you've ruined the wine, you've ruined the skin. And Jesus comes to bring us this new wine that cannot be contained within the old. And as we get further into the teachings of Jesus, this will become more clear. Jesus is bringing us the new covenant. And you cannot cram the new into the old. It will burst out of it. It is not compatible. You cannot fit it in there. Now, some people, again, like I said, modern-day followers of Jesus wrestle with this. Well, does that mean like the old was no good and the old... No! The old ag agreement, the old covenant was so vital, was so important, and within the old is the promise of the new. Going back all the way to the time of Abraham. God promised Abraham that we're going to build, he's going to build a nation out of this man, but one day he's going to bless all the nations through the descendants of this man. You go back to the time of Jeremiah, and he explicitly says, I'm going to set a new covenant with all people. And so within the old is the promise of the new. There was something that was going to cease and something else that was going to take its place, become bigger and better. Jesus brings us the new wine. Now, as you look through the Bible about like the imagery with wine, and sometimes wine is associated with drunkenness, which is forbidden, all right? Drunkenness is forbidden. You're not forbidden to drink. You're forbidden from drunkenness. But wine can also be associated with celebration. Hey, we've got something to celebrate. Pop open the wine. It can also be associated with celebration. The very first miracle, according to John's gospel, that Jesus performs, wine, turning water into wine, celebration. Here he talks about bringing this new wine. And spoiler alert, when we get to the Last Supper, what does Jesus say about the wine? This wine is my blood, the blood of the New covenant, a celebration, bringing us the new. 
And so this was the struggle. Jesus was a man kind of bridging, not really, I shouldn't say kind of, he really bridged the gap from the old as he brought in the new. Continuing on here, i got to read about some of these instances of Jesus doing stuff on the Sabbath, all right? Verse 23, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain field, and his disciples were walking along, and they began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to them, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Again, oh, can I stress this point enough? Here they were from this position of righteousness. We're assessing what you're doing, and it's bad. What's, what's bad about it? They accused him of breaking the law. Was he breaking the law? Was he doing anything that was unlawful to do? No, actually, the law allowed for people, as you're passing through a field, you could pick some grain if you were hungry. You were allowed to do this. You weren't allowed to grab a bag and just harvest from your neighbor, but as you were walking along, if you were hungry, and these men were hungry, you were allowed to do this. He was not breaking the law. What he was doing was breaking their law, not the law of God, but their law. Later on, Jesus will say, your teachings are but rules taught by men, right? See, these guys, they come up with all these different ways where you could break the Sabbath. They invented like a whole set of 39 rules. Again, rules by my, made by man. You're not allowed to do these 39 things on the Sabbath. And then each one of those 39 things had 39 subcategories of things you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath. Oh, you're breaking the law of God. And Jesus is like, I'm not breaking the law of God. I'm just breaking your made-up rules. What are you talking about? So he goes through and he does this. And he answers them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathat, sorry, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. You guys have got this all wrong. God gave you a day off. This is supposed to be a gift for you. And you've made it work trying to follow all these legalistic rules. You're missing the point of what God is trying to give you something good. You've made it into a burden. Moving on to chapter 3. Another time. Oh, this is classic, guys. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man, a man with a shriveled hand was there, and some of them, listen to this, some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. What? Why are we like this, human beings? Why do we do this? I'm not here to hear you out. I'm not here to consider. I'm not here to see the signs and be changed by them. I'm looking for something I can hold against you. How ugly. The human condition, the human heart looking for some reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal this man with a shriveled hand, to heal him on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, because of course Jesus knows this is a setup, he says to the man, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath? I know what's up, guys. You're looking for something to hold against me. You're looking for an accusation. Let me just ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or evil? To save a life or to kill? They remained silent. Oh, you got nothing to say to that? Yeah, I didn't think so. He looked around at them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And look how they respond. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians, followers of King Herod, 
how they might kill Jesus. And so he says to them, which is lawful to do, good or evil, to save a life or to kill? Which is lawful to do on the Sabbath? And so here Jesus does good on the Sabbath, but the very same people that had a problem with him healing a man, they go on the Sabbath to begin to plot his murder. You're missing it, guys. You're missing it. You're focused on all the wrong things here. Witness what Jesus is doing, like, like Nicodemus, who we talked about last week. He witnessed the signs, and he was changed. He allowed his mind to be changed because he saw what Jesus was doing. He was not looking for a reason to accuse. But guys, you've got to pay attention to what's happening right in front of your face. And just that, that line that we're given, that Jesus is distressed by this. I mean, for some reason, that brings me comfort. Just to him, guys, you're just, you've got it all wrong. Tomorrow, for those of you who are participating in the Jesus reading plan, you're going to start, Matthew 5, you're going to start with the Sermon on the Mountain. And in that Sermon on the Mountain, Jesus speaks to this very heart issue that people had, this, this tension between the Old Covenant and bringing the New Covenant. So again, he has this opportunity to speak, and I really hope you read, I mean, I know I've made my case before, but I'll make it again. I really hope you read the Sermon on the Mountain this week. Learn from Jesus. Don't, don't learn from me. Learn, hear what he has to say, right? Don't take my word for it. But in this teaching time, he's got a mixed audience. He has people that are sinners who are maybe open to hearing from him, and he's got people who are there who have this righteous attitude, who feel like they're just there to critique and criticize, and he speaks to this very dilemma of the old law and the new. And here's what he says. You're going to see this tomorrow as you read it. Matthew 5, 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And all the people, all the righteous, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the members of the Sanhedrin, when they heard him speak those words, they must have found them comforting. Whew, good. Because Jesus, we were kind of concerned about you, buddy, right? Because you go out there and it feels like you're doing something new and it sounds like you're kind of like tearing down the old way of things. You're tearing down our old covenant. You're disregarding the prophets. Thank goodness you clarified that for us, Jesus. Oh, good, you're not here to get rid of any of that. You're not here to abolish that. But then Jesus keeps speaking. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I'm not here to get rid of the old covenant. That's not, that's not happening here. I'm not, not here to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to complete them. Guys, I know you're worried about everything I'm doing and saying, and you think I'm here to get rid of the old. I'm not here to get rid of the old. I'm here to fulfill it, to complete it. That's huge. I, he's saying, I'm the Messiah. Here's what he's saying. I'm the one who's going to fulfill all of this. When John the Baptist, when he identifies Jesus publicly, you remember what he calls me. He says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we look back to that old law, we look back to that old covenant, and what was built into that old covenant, but this sacrificial system, this idea, this knowledge. I mean, God was imparting to the people, you are sinful, and when you sin, you must bring a blood sacrifice before me. And yet John the Baptist says, this man, this is the last sacrifice. This man, Jesus, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And on the cross... Jesus did exactly what he told us he was going to do. On that cross, he fulfilled 
the law and the prophets. He fulfilled the reason for the law, and he fulfilled the prophecies about the Messiah. And on that cross, he suffered and died and shed his blood for the sins of the world. And on that cross, he suffered greatly in agony, taking on your sins. Peter tells us that on that tree, on that cross, he bore the sins of the world in his body. And he did that for you. He did it for you as a gift for you. And you read through the Gospels, and it's made clear why Jesus did this. He did it for your sake. He did it for my sake. And that all of us who put our trust in Jesus, instead of trusting in ourselves, when we put our trust in Jesus and what he has accomplished, we receive the gifts from him, the gift of forgiveness of sins, the gift of eternal life. And Jesus died on that cross, but he did not stay dead on the third day. He rose again, proving that he was exactly who he claimed to be, proving that he was and is the son of the living God. And he extended unto the world these gifts. He's extended to everyone, every single one of us, these gifts of forgiveness and eternal life. He has made these gifts possible to receive for all people, for God so loved the world. Whoever it is in your life right now who does not know Jesus as their Savior, guess what? They can. It's not about how good of a person they are. It's not about their past. It's not about how much good deeds they can do in the future. No, it's about transferring trust off of ourselves and placing it on to Jesus. Jesus has become the Lamb of God. He has fulfilled the law and the prophets, and he has brought us this beautiful new covenant. And all of us, all of us who receive Jesus as our Savior, we will receive that forgiveness of sins, and we will be saved. Amen? All right, friends. I know I've made this point a lot so far today. One last time, I want to encourage you, before we, we enter into our closing prayer, I want to encourage you one last time, jump into the, the readings this week, okay? Read that Sermon on the Mountain. Again, don't take my word for what Jesus says. Listen to him speak yourself. Right? I promise you, you won't regret it. Now, please stand as you are able as we join together in our closing prayer. Jesus, as we look at, at your words here, as we look at the ways that you engage with people, as you look at the ways that you spoke back and answered the questions of the Pharisees, Jesus, I just feel a sense of, of warning coming from you that those of us who follow you, Jesus, we must be careful not to fall into the mindset of the Pharisees, not to fall into that legalistic attitude. And so, God, I pray that you would protect us from that. Allow us to hear what you have to say. Allow us to be transformed by the power of, of your word. And Father, I pray for the people in this room and all of our loved ones who are not here. We pray for the people who don't yet know you, Jesus, as the Lamb of God, as their Savior. God, we thank you for what you've done for us. You've sacrificed the life of your one and only Son so that we could be saved. And so we pray that you would allow all of us to accept you, to receive you. Give us the ability to transfer trust off of ourselves and place it onto you, Jesus, where it belongs. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.